listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 414. I'm your host, Annika Harrison, and with me this week are my co-hosts, Pontus Beckmann and Luna Harrison. Hallo! Hey son, hey son, Luna, that was a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't had her on the podcast for a while. I yeah. think she's grown uh, two years since the last time. I don't yeah. know. It goes yeah. very fast in that age. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. It's, time is flying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So Luna is sitting in for Andras because Andras is traveling again. Yes. We'll see uh, exactly what she has prepared and what topics she is going to talk about. We will be just as surprised as the rest of you, so we'll see what happens. Exactly, I will. I'll keep my ears peeled for that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Okay, so uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned our Turkish friend Serdar, and uh, that he was working on an article for the Skeptic UK magazine. As I said, the article is about conspiracy theories regarding the Turkish earthquake, which was about almost exactly a year ago now. So as a follow-up, I'm happy to say that the article is now published and I highly recommend reading it. You can find it. We'll put a link in the show notes, but you can find it for free on the Skeptic UK. So I expected it to be a lot about conspiracy theories about divine intervention, mm -hmm. like that the earthquake was God's punishment and the whole Islamist angle, but it wasn't that much that. Uh, that has been the case regarding several earthquakes in the past in Turkey, but not so much this time. Instead, it seems like the authorities have actively managed to argue against that. What they have emphasized instead is that the, an earthquake was quite inevitable and impossible to prevent or do anything about, which is, I mean, you can't prevent earthquakes. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, how, that is how would true. you do that? Yeah. No. But it seems that they have pushed this to deflect their own responsibility to handle the consequences of it. Because you can limit the actual damage by making sure that buildings and infrastructures and rules and regulations are, are in order so that you build houses and bridges and stuff that can withhold uh, earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what the situation was there. But, um, of course, outside of the government narrative, there was also other conspiracy theories, often centered around that the U.S. somehow had managed to cause this earthquake for, for some nefarious reason. These Americans again. Yeah, it's always the Americans, right? I mean, we can, we can accuse them of a lot of things, but... but Probably not the, the Turkish, earthquake, no. I don't think so, but who am I to tell? I don't know. So, anyway... Uh, the article is very good. The, the link is in the show notes, so please check it out. And, and thank you, Sardar, for, for breaking that down for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just want to give note of a survey that's happening. It's uh, being conducted by Dr. Valerie van Mulukom of Coventry University, and it's about worldviews. They're conducting research to better understand what the worldviews are of people around the world and crucially including non-religious individuals of different backgrounds. And of course, there are no better people to ask than skeptics to participate <laughs> in that. Um, and we'll put the link to that into the show notes. Yeah, yes, right. It's It's been translated to a number of mm -hmm. languages as well, apparently. Yes. So we'll see. I mean, 
I, I encourage people to do this. Uh, we all know that you have to be careful when you interpret these results because whenever you ask people to take a survey, especially online, it's a self-selected number of people who does this. So, so maybe we don't get always a representative mm-hmm sample of the population but but anyway it's worth a try mm-hmm. so we have the link in the show notes yeah exactly so yeah mm-hmm. if you if you want to participate just click the link and we'll be happy mm-hmm. to have you participate very good yeah pontus um Andres isn't here so i'm wondering is there a twish this week Yes, there is, actually, because I knew that he wasn't going to be here and I found something that was really fascinating. So I think it's a topic he would have liked to do. But uh, sorry, Andras, you snooze, you lose. You can listen to me doing it instead and then you can tell me (laughs) next week what I got wrong. Because today we are going to dig into one of the classical myths of the 20th century, the curse of the mummy, the curse of the pharaohs. Because today, as this episode comes out, but 101 years ago, on 16th of February 1923, archaeologists led by British Egyptologist Howard Carter opened the inner burial chamber of the tomb of Tutankhamun, King Tut. Yeah, King Tut was only to his friends, I guess. So this is not when they actually discovered the tomb. Mm -hmm. The tomb itself was opened already in November the year before, but now they opened the inner chamber. And this is where all the big discoveries were made. Do you know offhand, uh, Annika, the famous quote when he peeked in and somebody, the person with him asked him, what do you see? He said something like, I see wonderful things. <laughs> something something have, like that. Like, I would probably have yeah. said, I don't see anything. It's dark. <laughs> <laughs> he may have had a flashlight. I don't know. But that's, the, that's part of the legend that he, he said that. The tomb of Tutankhamun was unique because it was almost untouched by tomb raiders over the millennia. And he died in the year 1323 BCE. So that's over 3000 years ago. That's a long time for for something Mm -hmm. to stay undisturbed. The chamber of the tomb was actually not very big compared with those of other pharaohs. And it is believed that Tutankhamun died unexpectedly. But he was only 18 or 19 years old. So no big tomb had been prepared for him yet. Instead, they probably used a chamber that was meant for someone else, somebody who was less important. But even if it was small, the fact that it was almost intact meant that over 5,000 artifacts were retrieved from the tomb or from the inner chamber. And it was an international sensation. Mm. I think most people today have seen at least the pictures of the golden funeral mask of Tutankhamun. Mm-hmm. It's very famous. So it's one of like, by now it's one of these stereotypical things you, you think about when yes. someone says, think of ancient Egypt. <laughs> it, it's true. And, and it's not just that people may have seen it online or pictures because it's been also traveling. I mean, what I mean is that they have sent it for around to different museums so people from different countries can see it nowadays they don't do that i believe i think they send around a replica and that's what i've seen but Mm -hmm. it's still very impressive but one big thing that comes with this story is the legend of the curse of course and that that is the legend that's supposed to have plagued the the people who were involved in opening the grave and the first person to die was a guy called lord carnarvon 
And I almost, it, that's a British name, but it's very oddly spelled. It almost sounds Egyptian to me when I say it, but Carnarvon, Carnarvon. I, I'm probably mispronouncing it. But he was the one who financed the excavation. And what happened to him was that he had been bitten by a mosquito and the wound became infected and he died of blood poisoning six weeks after the opening of this inner chamber. At the same time as he died, at least according to uh, contemporary newspapers, and we always believe what's in the papers, right? Yeah. When he died, at the exact moment, his three-legged dog, no further story about it, it was a three-legged dog, but his three-legged dog howled and dropped dead, and all the lights in the city of Cairo suddenly went out. That is the story. And we're sticking with That's a good ghost story. It's a good ghost story. You can, you can understand that this um, really became something people talked about. There was another guy called Arthur Weigel, who was a previous inspector general of antiquities in the Egyptian government, who added to this story. And he reported that a royal cobra, uh, the same kind that was worn on the king's mask, had broken into Carter's house on the day of the opening of the tomb and killed Carter's canary. So there was a canary bird oh, and it wow. was eaten by a snake. And it has to be a magic then. Weigel also reported that he himself had predicted the death of Lord Carnarvon six weeks before he had died because Carnarvon had been laughing and joking disrespectfully as he entered the tomb. And uh, he had said then, oh, I give him six weeks to live. And lo and behold, he died six weeks later. The myth of the mummy was born this way. And it was, as I said, quickly spread around the globe. Benito Mussolini, no less, infamous Italian dictator, he ordered a mummy that he had received as a gift to be removed from the Palazzo... Now we need Andras. Palazzo Chigi in Rome. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, whom we all know and love, Sherlock Holmes mm. and all that, he was also, as we know, very spiritually challenged, I would say. <laughs> and he suggested that Lord Carnarvon's death had been caused by so-called elementals, quote-unquote, created by Tutankhamun's priests to guard the royal tomb. And elemental is apparently a mythical uh, supernatural being that was popularized by Paracelsus, of all people, and others as well, I think. Now, the idea of a curse of the pharaohs was not entirely a new thing. You can almost say that there has it has some basis in reality, because a lot of the older tombs of pharaohs had inscriptions outside warning future grave robbers that terrible things would happen to anyone who disturbed the resting place of the dead. So that this was everything from eternal damnation to the end of the world. Uh, Ragnarok. No, that's the wrong religion, I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> so what can we say now? Was there a curse? Well, so far I've only mentioned one death. But what happened to the rest of the people who were there? And, of course, this has been studied. So you, we can say that 12 years after the opening of the tomb, 50 out of the 56 people involved were still alive and well, including Carter himself. Carter, who explicitly said he never believed in any curse, lived to be 64 years old. And he died of lymphoma in 1939. 
The first person to enter the tomb was Lady Evelyn Herbert. She didn't die until 1980, which is 57 years later. So that's... Maybe the mummy only follows guys. Uh, maybe, maybe. Or the curse is very weak and it takes time to con conquer some <laughs> people. So the most known study about the survival of the participants was published in the BMJ, British Medical Journal, in 2002. And this is the conclusion of the author, who was called Dr. Mark Nelson. Quote, There was no significant association between exposure to the mummy's curse and survival, and thus no evidence to support the existence of a mummy curse. End quote. So I'm afraid... Uh, no curse in sight. Sorry about that. But the whole idea, as we know, has grown over the years and generated a lot of great and some not so great works of fiction like your books and movies, even music. And um, the main lore of the curse of the mummies started today, 101 years ago, on 16th of February, 1923. Happy Tomb Day! Happy Tomb Day! Yes. Of course, everybody knows about the, the, the curse of the mummies. As I said, how many movies haven't we seen about this? And some of them are not so good either. Yes. Thank you so much for this, Pontus. That was really fascinating, especially for me as a history nerd. <laughs> oh, we little, all are, in a way. There's a little uh, person singing a song in the back. But yeah, that that means that already concludes Twish, and now we mm -hmm. should go over to the news. Right, as we have said before, chiropractic is based on superstition and pre-scientific nonsense. That's a fact. The foundational idea of D.D. Palmer, who came up with the whole thing, was that misalignments in the spine, which he called subluxations, were the root cause of many health issues. So he had a notion that you could correct these so-called misalignments with spinal manipulation, and that would somehow cure people from diseases. This has no basis in reality at all. And um, in fact, these spinal adjustments, which are often sometimes at least rather violent and, and sudden, is suspected to cause damage, which uh, in exceptional cases can actually kill people. Mm -hmm. It's hard to prove that, but it, but it seems like that happens sometimes. And even if you're lucky and that doesn't happen, it won't cure you of anything. Despite this, we know that chiropractic is allowed in many countries. In the UK, chiropractors are supposed to be overseen by the GCC the General Chiropractic Council. The problem with this is that the GCC is run by chiropractors. And uh, we have seen instances in the past that when patients have reported complaints that they have been harmed by chiropractors, the GCC comes to the chiropractor's defense uh, rather than try to protect the patient. And now it has happened again. The only difference this time is that it's not about direct physical harm, but what I would regard as sexual abuse. Mm. Uh, very disturbing. But in this case, after a complaint, this male chiropractor in question has admitted to the GCC that he, one, had requested the younger female patient to remove her clothing to her underwear for the purpose of examination. Not a good start. Two, 
He treated the area near her vagina and groin with a vibrating tool. Mm. And I think he means vulva, but uh, yes. not vagina. Yes. But uh, as we know, chiropractors are not doctors, so he may not know the <laughs> difference. Burn. <laughs> and three, he also treated the area around her breasts. Coincidence. Yeah, yeah. And this, is, well, this was for a neck pain. As I said, he's not a doctor. Now, the GCC are supposed to, to take care of these kinds of complaints. And what did they have to say about this? Well, let me quote them from their own report about this. Quote, The learning from this case is that the complaint to the GCC may have been avoided if the chiropractor had been more alert to the need to ensure he communicated effectively so that the patient was clear as to why the intimate areas were being treated and, on that basis, given informed consent, end quote. So nothing about that this is inappropriate to do. It's just that the chiropractor should have explained it better, what he was doing. So that was one thing. Uh, and I would like to know what he think he was doing as well. So I, I don't know if he could have explained it. Then the GCC go on to say that, quote, Patients often feel vulnerable before, during and after treatment, and this effect is magnified when the patient is unclothed, new to chiropractic treatment or new to the work of a particular chiropractor, or they are being treated in an intimate area, end quote. So now they are blaming the patient. The patient was at fault for not being used to being abused in this way. She just didn't know that chiropractors sometimes like to massage their intimate parts for no reason. <laughs> uh, and in the time, if he had, she had gone to him many times, she may have gotten used to it. So, so it's sort of her fault. So victim blaming also. It's wow. Yes. Fantastic. This is from an organization that's supposed to make sure that their members are practicing chiropractic in a responsible way. But um, I think they spelled irresponsible wrong. <laughs> so I would say that uh, the GCC or the General Chiropractic Council is not there or they don't think that they are there to protect the patient. They are there, they think, to cover up for their own members' misdeeds. Cover-up is a good segue, so I will use it. Okay. Because if one has problems and cavities in their teeth, then it usually gets covered up after a, a <laughs> medical treatment by different ceramics or metal, and one of that is dental amalgam. That is an alloy that is put into teeth to help after cavities. And now there are new developments there because the European Union has agreed to phase out the use of dental amalgam by January the 1st of next year, 2025, except in medically necessary cases. And mm -hmm. um, this seems to be a pollution thing as amalgam contains mercury. It's a mercury alloy. Countries with reimbursement assessments that um, are not covering alternatives are allowed to delay this phasing out process until June of 2026, June 30th, 2026, to mitigate the socioeconomic impacts. But export and import of amalgam will be prohibited by 2026. This mm -hmm. aims to ensure a mercury-free future. But it also, of course, has to keep in mind that there are medical needs and socioeconomic factors. Yeah, you might be wondering why are we talking about this as a skeptical podcast? We're not the European Dental podcast. 
And that <laughs> is because there are a few controversies about it. There are benefits of using amalgam, which are that it's very durable, it's cost effective, more affordable, and it's pretty easy to work with for dentists, um, which means also cost effective for and it's an effective placement into the cavities. But it contains mercury. You can also see a difference. There's a pretty obvious difference on your teeth. Then also the fillings can expand and contract, which can also lead to cracks in tooth structure. And there's a potential for allergic reactions, which is not that high in ceramics. The thing is that, and I said there's a controversy, which is that some people say, well, the mercury in there is minimal and there's not really something happening there and we need more studies and others are saying, no, it contains mercury, so it has to go. And yeah, I, I think I would be interested to hear more about the science behind that. So if, if I find it, I will keep the podcast updated. I knew that amalgam was put into teeth, but I never really asked myself what is it and what it does it contain of. So that was yeah. really interesting. Uh, but you can really see that it's really about pollution and the EU maybe even following the naturalistic fallacy here. And I don't want to say overly much because I'm not a dental expert, but Molly Mortler mm. of the EU said um, that this is an important step towards a mercury-free future. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm not an expert on dental care either, but I uh, have heard uh, from what I think is reliable sources that it, even though it, it contains mercury, it's not free mercury. It won't react with your body. It is uh, bound in this alloy and uh, will not be harmful for people. I, I can also say that there's been a lot of, I mean, it sounds scary having mercury mm -hmm. in your body. So you don't want that. And it, I think it's over 20 years ago it was banned in Sweden. Mm. So I think I had some fillings with amalgam, but I don't have them anymore. The only thing I heard also is that if you have them, it's reportedly more dangerous to take them out again. Because when you, if you go in there and you, you drill into them and try to get them out, then you actually yeah. can activate it. Uh, yeah. Well, spread a little traces mm -hmm. of mercury yeah, in your too. mouth. And that's not, so, so don't remove them if you don't uh, have to. And uh, that's the, what I've heard as a recommendation. But I think plastics and ceramics today are very good. Mm. So, It's better to use them, of course. I've also read that yeah. you're not allowed to use it with people under 15 years of age or for like pregnant women and breastfeeding women. So mm -hmm. um, they're already like stricter in that regard. Yeah, yeah but very soon they won't exactly. be Exactly, that, that won't, it won't be, be allowed a case at all, so. anyway, very soon. Yeah, uh, which I think is mm -hmm. for the best. Okay, speaking of the EU and regulations... Several times in the past, we've been talking about how the EU is blocking any kind of genetically modified organisms or GMOs, despite any evidence or even, I would, I would say, theoretical basis that it would or could be dangerous. Humans have always improved on plants and animals to make them produce more and better food for us. It doesn't matter how you do it, I think. Uh, if you are use selective breeding, or even radiation has been used on, on plants at least, or if you use GMO, the end result is always per definition that you have changed the genes in the organism. So they have been modified. 
But you could argue, I think, that with GMO, the method is much more precise or exact because you can decide exactly what genes to change rather than the others that are more hit and miss things. So I think, again, you mentioned a natural fallacy. I think people are scared of it, of GMO, because it sounds unnatural. So there are more shades here of of the nuance because there are traditional GMO and there is CRISPR. In traditional GMO, you often add genes from one organism to another to move certain beneficial traits from one species to another, or rather, more often, it's from one variant of the same species to another. The, the newer CRISPR techniques that we have talked a lot about does not add new genes. It just modifies genes that are already there in the organism. Most commonly, we can use CRISPR to switch on or switch off genes without introducing anything new. And despite this, EU decided in 2018, and I remember we talked about this on the show, they de- decided that the, they wouldn't make any difference between GMO and CRISPR. It's all GMO, they said. However, things may now change because on the 7th of February, the European Parliament voted to accept a new position on what is now called NGT or New Genomic Techniques, which I believe is basically CRISPR. So the NGT plant, because these new rules do not cover animals at all, it's still about plants, they are now classified into two groups, the NGT1 and NGT2, where NGT2 plants will still be under the same regulation as GMO, but NGT1 plants will be exempted from the requirements of the GMO legislation and can therefore be approved within the EU. So it's maybe it's baby steps, but we're, we're getting there. The drawback is that the new rules, they have been accepted, but... They now need to be negotiated and agreed with each individual EU country. So that can take a while. And uh, I think it would be better to include... I mean, don't treat GMO differently. I, I can grant this much. If you have developed a new kind of plant based on GMO, I think that plant should be studied and tested and go through some sort of approval process. But it shouldn't be different if you've done it through GMO, CRISPR or radiation, which is fine today, or selective breeding. It's its the same thing. But uh, yeah, so we will see uh, what happens. But at least it's, a, as I said, a baby step in the right direction, in my yeah. opinion. So um, in that regards, I'm glad to hear that because mm-hmm. it's, it's a step in the right direction. I heard of a new report, and that's a completely different topic now. There's a new report out by the Bildungsstätte Anne Frank, which is a an institution, educational institution named after the Jewish girl Anne Frank who got persecuted by the Nazis and killed. Mm-hmm. The authors, Dr. Deborah Schnabel and Eva Berenson, published a report about the harms of TikTok following the start of the war in Israel on the 7th of October 2023. Mm-hmm. And It's really interesting because this is really referring back to TikTok and our criticism of it that we have been doing for the last years, I even would say. And we can see again in this report that TikTok can be really harmful in in educating young people, especially regarding political views. 
the problem with TikTok is that its algorithm often promotes content based on engagement rather than accuracy. So this, this can, of course, lead to the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories, which in case then also influences young people's understanding of political issues. It can also create echo chambers. Because again, the algorithms tend to show you user content that aligns with users' existing beliefs and interests. Also, sometimes the other way around, things that make yes. you mad. Yes, and, and, because and, oh. that, that's exactly it. it. You can also get radicalized by TikTok, especially if you're a part of a vulnerable group. So for example, as a teenager, because you can easily access extremist content you can normalize that in your brain. And then lastly, there's also the lack of fact-checking. Very often um, there is A, no fact-checking within TikTok, but B, a lot of younger viewers, they also want to have the skills or the inclination to fact-check the information. And that can lead to the acceptance and uncritical acceptance of misleading political narratives. So overall, TikTok, yes, can be entertaining, can be a cool creative outlet, but it does have an impact on young people's political education. And it is of negative because of these reasons I just stated. And in this report, they have several ideas. For example, they say that politics should get involved and they should not only put laws out, but also educate more. And for that, they also urge teachers to get involved. And they had the really memorable quote in there, which was, we can't do democracy education without teaching media competency. And this is so smart because, yes, mm. nowadays it has to go hand in hand. Maybe in the 90s or in the early 2000s, when, when I went to school, you could do democracy education by itself and media competency. You're like, yeah, if you were lucky, you maybe had like <laughs> one semester of, of uh, mm. computer science, but that's about it. But nowadays, we can't keep that, uh, keep doing that anymore. We have to do that hand in hand. Yeah, it's all connected. Yes, exactly. Um, because otewise citizens and young people are the citizens of tomorrow. They will be they more are. susceptible to manipulation by propaganda, misleading information, biased media outlets and TikTok. <laughs> and <laughs> for that, they gave two very easy tips. And that is you have to show your students or your son, your daughter, whoever you're talking with. Oh, also, it can also be as an older person that is not maybe not as media savvy. And they said there are two different things. You can A, point out the block and report system on TikTok. So how to block someone and how to report them to TikTok itself. And the second thing is if you give them a definition of hate speech. So mm. what what is hate speech? What is it doing? And how can I recognize it? So And of course, also that there are different forms of it. So like derogatory language, slurs, but also harassment, threats, um, incitement of violence, but also uh, speak, speaking hateful about a whole group of uh, people or about a whole nation. Sometimes it can even be as hidden as a string of emojis. Yeah. I read the example of they had like the flag of Israel and a rubbish bin or a rat Mm. And then this like gun emoji or so. And this is something that if you don't know what, what it, this is about, then you might not be able to recognize that. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that problem there is that it evolves very quickly so yes. that we are now also, we, we need to have teachers being up to date yes. with, with these codes, I would mm -hmm. say. And also, yeah. you mean, even just 
having the teachers use TikTok a bit, which I don't know if it's very easy to get them to do that because many of them may not be interested really in that. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yes, and and that's actually something they also mentioned in the report because a lot of teachers are actually not as media savvy as their students, especially mm. not when it comes to newer social media like TikTok or Instagram. And they feel like they can't really help. And that's also like where pol politics come in again, um, to make, to do workshops with teachers, to make it easier and more accessible for, for teachers to do this. Even if it's just pointing out where you can block and report. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Okay. Speaking of uh, new technology that mm -hmm. we may not always understand, everybody's talking about AI, of course, nowadays and how we should adapt to it. Uh, in a recent turn of events, a researcher called Lisi Volkovich submitted a paper for peer review. And she works at the laboratory, which studies, according to themselves, for her own description, they study how global change reshapes ecological communities. I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, but I'm sure that's a valid area of study mm -hmm. if you're into that. That doesn't really matter. The issue was that the paper was rejected of the peer review because one of the reviewers wrote that the report was, quote, obviously chat GPT, end quote. And uh, the handling editor sort of agreed to that, so not approved. But uh, there were no allegations of false data. Nothing was wrong with the conclusions or, or methodology or anything like that. It's just like the text looks like it was generated by chat GPT, so rejected. Now, Volkovich was obviously shocked and dismayed and felt very confused by this. She knows that she has written every word of the report herself and tried to explain it, but to no avail. Well, at least this is what she says. We'll, for the moment, just take her word for that. So since she couldn't get any further with that, she instead wrote a piece about her experience and got it published in the UK journal Nature. So this is a letter to the editor or whatever you call it. And the issue that this highlights is how do we handle the existence of AI, regardless of if this was true or not? If we take Volkovich's word for it, she didn't do anything wrong. And moreover, the reviewer presented no proof that this was ChatGPT either. It was just a feeling that reviewer had. So it was obviously ChatGPT, quote unquote. So number of questions from this. How do we prove that this allegation is wrong? Or does the reviewer have to prove that it is right? But also, is it not allowed? If the end result is a good scientific paper mm -hmm. that provides good insight into scientific matter, who cares who actually wrote the yeah. sentences? It's not plagiarism, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not plagiarism. And as long as it's true, it's science, so to say. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't yeah, matter yeah. how Nobody's, you arrive there. Yeah, right. As long as you're not making up data. Yeah. Hashtag look at last episode. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> if you're not making up the data and if the analysis is sound, Who cares who wrote yeah. the sentences? Yeah. It's like the, the scientist who does the science is the scientist, but the scientist who writes the report is only a tool to communicate the data, so to say. Correct. And for correct. that, AI can also be the tool. Yeah, correct. So I think this is something we have to accept, mm -hmm. that people are using all tools, as you say, that are available to achieve a better result. I, I'm old enough 
uh, that there was still a debate when I started secondary school and we were all handed a calculator each. <laughs> that was quite a new thing back then. Mm. Uh, hashtag old podcaster. But, but this was just a tool and it was decided that we were allowed to use this, even encouraged to do it. But there was a lot of older people at the time arguing, arguing that we would never learn how to calculate properly if we never got to do it the old-fashioned way. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, you know, if a machine can do it for us, how could we ever understand it? And famously, we were told that if you don't have your calculator with you, what will you do then? Because you can't you won't you always can't. have a calculator in your pocket. Exactly, which we now have. Uh, everybody has a smart smartphone, and one of the th apps is a calculator. So, so that argument wasn't. Yeah, really jokes on true. you, old farts. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I obviously don't have all the answers, but we need to decide how to handle the existence of AI, not just in research, but everywhere, in education, in literature, films, even art can be created by AI, mm -hmm. and. How do we think about this? Is this not art just because it was made by AI, but exact same picture made by a person? It's suddenly beautiful art. I don't know. We have to make decisions mm -hmm. and, and know how to handle this. Yeah. As you listeners might know, I sometimes am active in the self-publishing scene. I, I didn't self-publish anything yet, but I have several friends who self-publish their novels. And there's actually a bit of a movement there that say like, no, we don't do cover art with AI. We would never do that. We want to support real artists. And I find that okay. really interesting because uh, as you said, like I have seen really beautiful uh, covers done by AI. Mm. Of course, I also do want to support people, but I feel it can be used as a cool tool. So yeah. um, I really don't have an answer for that. Yeah, it's the end result that matters, not not how it came to be and what tools you used. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and the end result of our news segment is that we're done with the news now, Pontus. <laughs> That's an end result, yes. Yes. So we should find out if there's someone who has been really wrong this week. Yes, and it shouldn't be a surprise. There is. <laughs> there's always somebody. <laughs> there's always one. Or someone who's been really right, but not this week, sadly. We have found... An institute, thanks to Edzard Ernst. This institute is called Academic Research in Complementary and Integrative Medicine. And this institute exists since 2010, has eight co-workers and a director called Jan Fagedes. They have published a sizable amount of papers and now it comes. They are funded by the Federal Ministry of Education and Research, the German Bundesministerium für Bildung und Forschung. Jawohl. Yes, and the Male <laughs> Foundation. Wow. Then also the Damus Donata and Software AG, which is some other founders. But like that's where I really say where the rabbit is buried is that it's funded partly by the Federal Ministry of Education and Research. And now that really begs the question, why is that the Federal Ministry of Education and Research sponsoring this institute? Because as we know, anthroposophical medicine is based on concepts that fly in the face of science. And that's really hard to see. And also it's interesting how the director got his job because he seems to have no significant scientific publications prior to his appointment. <laughs> so it really go, goes back to two things. And that is A, 
that it's really delegitimizing and misleading. And on the other side, B, it's a misuse of public funds. Yeah. I mean, the, the federal government, no government, but especially the federal government should know better than to sponsor alternative uh, nonsense like this. Yes. So for funding an institute and misusing public funds, the Federal Ministry of Germany receives this week's prize for being really wrong. Really wrong. Quite so. That concludes this very special episode. But of <laughs> course, I don't want to let anyone go without a quote. And as I'm bound to do, I chose a short and sweet quote by John Locke. We had quotes of him before, but not this very quote. He was mm -hmm. an English uh, physician, a philosopher, and one of the people of the Age of Enlightenment. So he was born in 1632 in the area of Bristol and died 1704. And he said, quote, The improvement of understanding is for two ends. First, our own increase of knowledge. Secondly, to enable us to deliver that knowledge to others. End quote. Very good, very good. Understand it first yourself and then tell others. I think yes. that's a good, good motto. We'll tr we try to do that. We learn every day here on the, on the show. Yes. And we're trying to tell everybody else what we're learning. So uh, hopefully he'll be pleased with us. Yes. So that really is the end of the show. I think we will all be happy that, it's, that it will be out, despite Andras not being here. So we're looking forward to having Andras back very soon. Indeed. Thank you, Pontus, for joining me this week. Thanks a lot. Thanks also to my daughter, of course, who uh, <laughs> bravely <laughs> and patiently managed to sit here for an hour with us. And of course, I also want to thank our listeners for coming back week after week. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Hey, do. Tschüss. Wieslat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. I mean, Andres isn't here, but Pontus, I just was wondering. Uh, Luna, Luna will do this. <laughs> she has a bit of a cough. Yeah, okay. okay. Always comes in handy when you're recording these things. Of course. Pontus <laughs> is ja, wir müssen aber jetzt weiterarbeiten. Schatz, guckst du weiter, Peppa? Mama, mach den Punkt. Mach den Punkt wieder klein. Okay, warte, ich mache ihn wieder klein. So.
Jetzt kommt er gleich ganz klein wieder. <lacht> Sorry. Ähm, Schatzi, schau mal weiter, Peppa. Dankeschön. Who can compete with Peppa Pig? Exactly. I, yeah, yeah. <lacht> um, we, I will just go back to the segue. The tomb of Kukantamon. No. <lacht> Mama. Hallo Mama. Hallo. Baby. 